Megan and I have had one of those experiences that is not unique to us. I, I suppose that probably every parent that has ever lived on the face of the earth has faced this experience. But we've had Gracie come home, and she comes home. She came home sad. And she came home upset from school because she said some people had made fun of her. And some people had made fun of her last name, made fun of this, and made fun of that. And can I tell you all the truth? It made me mad. And look, I know they're six, all right? I know they're six, but it made me mad. Because all I, and look, I, I'm of the understanding that every parent probably inflates their children a bit, Okay. That, that maybe most parents have a higher view of their kids than what is reality. But all I can think about is this loving, sweet little girl that comes home and makes cards for everybody and wants to make people happy and wants to make mo her mom and I just feel good and, and, and feel pleasant. And the thought, the thought, y'all, of somebody breaking the heart of that little girl it's almost more than I can bear. Like, it's, 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 it's just incredible, like, the amount of rage that can build up in one's heart over something as simple as that. But I know, I know that a wise parent doesn't intervene in the hardship of their children. They equip their children to be able to, to cope with difficulty and cope with hardship and, and cope with meanness. But in my mind, what I want to do is I want to come up with a battle plan like Douglas MacArthur. Right? Like, 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 I want to put pen to paper, come up with a strategy, and crush the rebellion, you know? But the reason that I hate the thought of Gracie being hurt is because I love her so fiercely. Because I love her so fiercely. Because I know intrinsically, inherently, I would die for that little girl. I would lay down my life so that she would be better off. I would lay down my life so that she would be healthier, so that she would be happier, so that she would be better. And so the thought of somebody inter interfering with that happiness is profound. What we're going to see is that that is not an unhealthy hatred. That is not an unhealthy hatred. In fact, that's a hatred that I believe the scriptures teach us originates in God. A hatred that flows out of love. A hatred that flows out of passion. A, a hatred that flows out of goodness. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to conclude our time in Proverbs this morning. In Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 19. When you get there, would you stand with me? As we read God's word together. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among his brothers. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. So we come to Proverbs chapter 6, and we're confronted with something that is jarring to us. You see, we live in a society that says, only God can judge me, and they take refuge in that statement. As though God's judgment is never in the negative, as though God's judgment is never in, the, in wrath, as if God's judgment is never the result of 
pain and hardship and eventual eternal suffering. But what we see here in Proverbs chapter 6, something that is jarring to our very core and our foundation, is that God hates. God hates the God who is love at the very same time simultaneously is filled with hatred. That though God loves all the right things, God at the very same time hates all of the wrong times. And what we are seeing now, even if you've kept up with the UMC vote this past week, what we're seeing throughout the Christendom over the last 200 years are people that come to this jarring message of God's hatred and believe that they have to save the Bible from itself. Either they have to explain away the hatred of God or they have to dismiss outright the inerrancy and authority and sufficiency of the scriptures. Because it's, it's almost more than what we can handle. You see, the love of God, the fact that God is love, is an appealing message to sinners, isn't it? It's an appealing message. The, the thought that regardless of what I've done, that regardless of who I am, regardless of what my story, that the Lord will embrace me and that the Lord will love me and that the Lord will save me. And y'all, that is the gospel. That is the truth. Those things are not to be discounted. But at the same time, the Lord who is love is the Lord who is holy. You see, we love the messages of God's love, but we have difficulty and find it almost unthinkable that a God, that there is a God who finds sex outside of marriage and greed and gossip to be intolerable in his sight, to be detestable and abomination to him. You see, what we want to see is we want to see it, God as being this divine pawpaw in the sky, this, this grandpa that, you know, like when my kids, when they go to their grandparents' house, I usually have to spank them, like, as soon as they get in the door, right? Because, like, they're, they're just in a whole nother world, a whole nother stratosphere. And it, it's because they face no structure, no boundaries, no discipline for as long as they've been there. They just, hey, oh, okay, honey, well, here's some candy, right? This will make you better. And this is how we want to view God. We want to have this view of God as though God will overlook all of our sin and God will overlook all of our wickedness. And when we do bad, God will just hand us a lollipop and lead us the other way as though it's not significant. But what we see here is a different picture of God. In fact, what I want us to understand is that the love of God, apart from the holiness of God, wouldn't be worth very much. The only way that we can be certain of, the, certain of the purity of God's love is because God is holy. That is that, that God has a blinding passion for the truth, a blinding passion for that which is truly right and truly good and truly wonderful. That God doesn't just look and is okay with things. No, God is passionate about what is good. God is passionate about what is right. God loves what is right and loving what is right Loving what is truly moral, God detests all of those things that are enemies to that reality. God detests all of those things that bring death where he brings life, brings destruction where he brings construction. God hates all of those things because he loves so fiercely. You see, the holiness of God means that God hates as perfectly as he loves. He hates as perfectly as he loves. We've all heard that God loves us with a perfect love, but what we have to understand, brothers and sisters, is that God equally hates 
all of those things that are opposed to him and against him in a way that is equally perfect and equally wonderful and equally profound. And so when we come into our passage this morning, in verses 17 and 19, you'll, you'll notice how it, or in verse 16, you'll notice how it, how it starts. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And there, there's seven listed here. There's a couple of reasons. I'm going to point out another one a little bit later on that he, he does it that way. It's not because the wise man can't count, right? What he's wanting us to see, one of the re- things that he's saying when he says six and then he lands on seven, six, and then maybe seven, is he's wanting us to see that this is not an exhaustive list. This is not an exhaustive In other words, this is not all that God hates. This is not just what God hates. God hates all of these things, and he hates the things that are like these. He, he hates all of the things that are of this ilk and of, of this description and are of this nature. And so he comes and he, and he gives us these three recipients, I think, three recipients in each of the next three verses of the hatred of God. And, and if, if that language in and of itself is even jarring to you, you can look to Romans chapter 5 and realize that before we come to Christ, before we are in the gospel, before we are covered in his grace, the Bible, the gospel describes us as enemies of God, as recipients of the hatred of God. And so we see right here that there are three recipients of God's hatred. Of God's hatred. The first recipient that I want us to see is that God hates those who place themselves ahead of others. God hates those who place themselves ahead of others. We see this in verse 17. He says that three of the things that he hates are haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. And beneath the surface on all three of those are an attitude, a posture of, the, of someone who loves themselves, who thinks more highly of themselves, who prizes themselves above all other people. Let's look first at, at haughty eyes. And I, I want you to know, if you'll notice here in these first two verses that he starts with the top of your head and he goes all the way to the bottom, right? He starts with your eyes, and he talks about your tongue, and ultimately, he lands on your feet. And what we're supposed to see here is that sin, the infection of sin, infects the whole person. The infection of sin infects every part of you. There's no part of you that is perfectly redeemed, perfectly made, as though God intended it. No, all the way through, pulsating through your body, from the top to the bottom, is the infection of sin, and it is pervasive and comprehensive. But when we see haughty eyes, he's getting into the specifics, all right? So, so in, the, in the big picture, God hates those who, who prioritize themselves most. But, but then he gets into the specifics. And the first specific we see is that God hates those who love themselves most. God hates themselves who love themselves most. So, so haughty eyes, these are, these are arrogant eyes. These are conceited eyes. Th- these are people who are always looking down on other people so they can feel good about themselves. These are people who love to play the comparison game. And in the comparison game, they play it because they always win it. The outcome is fixed. They arrange the metrics depending on the person so that they can always find what is wrong about that person and compare it to what is right about them. That they can justify all of their weaknesses. They can justify all of their sin. They can justify all of their wickedness. While at the same time, looking at the people that they talk to. And looking at the people that they know. And being able to look down upon them. And so they tear one person down so they can build themselves up. 
by making someone else look small. They believe themselves to look big. You, you know this kind of person, right? This is when you meet somebody that you graduated with, 10, 15, 20, some of y'all 40, 50, uh, <laughs> years ago. And you meet that person, and you haven't seen them in a long time, right? And what do you do? You size them up. You think, you know what? I got a little more hair. I'm a little bit thinner. My kids are behaving a little bit better. I think I live in a little bit of a better, better neighborhood. Oh, they're driving that? Man, look at how successful I am. Look at how one, hey, and by the way, if, if, they, if they're driving a nicer car, you know, they always did cut corners. You, you never could trust them, right? I'm, I am far more ethical than they are. That's why I drive this jalopy and they drive the bins, right? We go and we meet people and we immediately begin tearing them down. We immediately begin criticizing them and picking them apart and analyzing them and comparing ourselves. And what are we doing? We are displaying our own insecurity. We are displaying our own need to be built up and to be better and to win the comparisons against other people. In other words, we are showing that we believe ourselves to be greater than them, to be more important than them. And so we have to find ways to reconcile that in our minds. And we do that by demeaning and diminishing who they are. You see, the haughty person's first reflex is not to make Jesus look good, it's to make themselves look good, even if it means making someone else look bad. The, the haughty person doesn't come in and think, how can I brag on Christ? How can I build up Christ? How can I make Christ known to this person? The haughty person comes and says, how can I make myself appear successful to them? How can I make myself appear thriving, like as though I'm thriving to them? How can I make it appear as though my life matters and my life is successful, even if in their minds they're having to destroy a person? It's as though they're their own VP of public relations rather than being an ambassador of Christ. But when we go to Matthew chapter 5, we see the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, we see a list of characteristics that are in every way the opposite of the list that we see at the end of Proverbs chapter 6. In the Beatitude, we don't see, in the Beatitudes, we don't see a list of characteristics that God hates. We see a list of characteristics that God loves. We see the type of person that he is looking for, the type of person that the Spirit has come to turn us into. And do you know what at the top of the list it is? Blessed are the peacemakers. I'm sorry, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, nothing is more anti-gospel than self-promotion. Jesus came to us in the form of a servant, not believing equality to God to be something which he can have, but rather lowering himself, emptying himself of his dignity, that he might lay down his life for many, that he might lay down his life for his church, that he might spill his blood and walk homeless upon this land so that you and I might enter into a relationship with Christ and be raised to salvation. See, to, to live as a self-promoter, to live as one who prioritizes yourself over others is to live in a way that opposes the way of Christ, that opposes the, the very message of the gospel. You see, you can't look down on others 
and up to Jesus at the same time, can you? You can't look down upon others and up to Jesus at the same time. You can't follow after the path of Christ while at the same time pursuing the path of self-promotion. So how, do you, how are you when you meet people? When you meet people, do you, do you begin to immediately pull them apart and tear them down in your mind and build yourself up? Do you immediately begin playing all of the comparison game? Do you immediately begin finding out ways in which you outmeasure the other person? You see, the way you are when you meet other people will tell you about your eyes. They'll tell you about your perspective. They'll tell you about your view of yourself, your view of others, and ultimately your view of the gospel and Jesus Christ. Do you have haughty eyes? Do you have haughty eyes? The second specific that he gives us is in verse 17. He says, a lying tongue. That is, that God hates those who lie so that others look worse while they look better. God hates those who lie so that others look worse while they look better. And if you think about it, these, this is the only possible motive for lying, isn't it? What, what, what other motive is there to lie? You lie for one of two reasons. You either lie so that you look really good, or you lie so that other people look bad. And you want to make them look bad so that then you look good. So there's, there's even a route beyond that. I mean, think about it. Why is it that you would cut strokes in a round of golf? You cut strokes because you want your buddy to believe that you're a better golfer than what you really are. Why is it that you would cheat on a test? It's because you want to appear as though you've studied for something that you haven't studied for. You want to appear as though you're a better student than you really are. You want to appear as though you have a higher intellect than you really have. You want to have a grade that is above the grade that you actually deserve. You want to receive scholarships that, aren't, aren't belong, that don't belong to you. That you lie, you are dishonest for the purpose of building yourself up or, or you're, you lie for the purpose of tearing someone else down. You know, nobody calls it gossip. When you, when you go and behind someone's back, I mean behind their back, without them even knowing, you say, can I tell you how kind this person is? Can, can I just tell you that every time I'm around Sam, now Sam ain't even in the room. Sam doesn't even know what I'm talking about. But can I just, every time I'm around Sam, he just makes me feel better. He calls me forward with Christ. If, if that rumor gets back to Sam, it doesn't anger him. It doesn't frustrate him. It encourages him. That's not gossip. What's gossip? Gossip's when you change someone's perspective of someone else in a negative way. It's when you talk and you exaggerate the truth and you lie about a person for the purpose of destroying that person, of damaging that person, of making that person look as though they aren't who they present themselves to be, to, to take a bad situation and to make that situation worse. That's gossip. That's slander. And, and, G, and, and Solomon is telling his son that the only reason that you would exaggerate what your ex has done or what someone else has said is because you want them to think less of that person and to think more of you. In other words, it's your attempts to steal the glory of God. It's your attempts to compete with God for His glory. It's, it's your attempt to look as though you are strong in comparison to everybody else's 
weakness. It's your attempt to portray a, a posture of strength in light of all the weaknesses that are around you. So I'm going to slander this person. I'm going to make this person look worse than they really are so that then I can look stronger than I really am. And God hates it. God hates when we rob him of his glory, when we compete him, with him for glory. But God loves it when we deflect glory. God loves it when we deflect glory. You see, living for the good of others, it doesn't make you look worse. It makes Jesus look better. Living for the good of others doesn't make you look bad. It makes Jesus look good. Christ came so that sinners might be better off than they were without him. Christ came so that he might build us up, us who were wicked, us who were the enemies of God, us who brought nothing to the table. He took us and made us living stones by which all of the kingdom of God will be built with he as the chief cornerstone. So tell the truth, brothers and sisters. Tell the truth. It may be humiliating to you in the moment, but it's better than the Facebook perfection that everybody else assumes. It's better than the image of perfection and the image of strength that is portrayed to the world that makes them believe that you don't even need Christ and you don't need the Holy Spirit and you don't need the gospel. It's better than the image of perfection that requires you to demean others and destroy others and diminish others so that you might look stronger than you really are and smarter than you really are and better than you really are. No, no, no. It may be humiliating to you in the moment. It may be hard for you in the moment. It may make you look bad in the moment to tell the truth, but telling the truth preaches the gospel. It says, I need Jesus even when I fail. I need Jesus because I sin. I need Jesus because I am not strong enough. I need Jesus because I make mistakes. I need Jesus because without him, I will be diminished. Without him, I will be destroyed. So tell the truth, brothers and sisters, not because it's easy, not because it's comfortable, but because it preaches the gospel. The final specific example he gives us there in verse 17 is hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood. That is, God hates those who believe they're more valuable. God hates those who believe they're more valuable than others. The only way that you can justify killing an innocent person is to devalue them. It is to say that they are worth less than what God has said they are worth. It is to assign them a, a, a value level that comes in lower than your only value. Think about this. We, we can see... We can see this littered throughout history. We can even see it here in modernity, right? Like, like if, you, if you go back to the, 40, the 30s and the 40s and the, the final solution by the Third Reich as, as Hitler demands the destruction of the Jews, why was he attempting to destroy all of the Jews? It was to propagate the race that he believed to be superior. It was to propagate the Aryan race and to advance human evolution. And so what he did is he assigned the Jews and those like them with a value that was less so that he could justify killing them even though they had not offended him, even though they had not wounded him, even though they had not damaged him, even though they had not threatened him. He killed them because he devalued them. Look at the civil rights movement and the lynchings that took place as, as the South was being integrated. 
There were, there were African Americans that were literally hung by ropes, not because they had brought offense, not because they had damaged anyone, not because they had hurt anyone. They were lynched because they were placed at a lesser value and believed to be expendable. And so they were lynched for the sake of political statements, even here in modernity. Perhaps an instance that is maybe worse than both of those. We see the abortion and the infanticide that is pervasive as there are governments that will, or state governments that are applauding the slaughter of the unborn up until the very day of birth. And we have a Congress that won't even vote to protect our children post-birth. How can we do that? How can we eliminate the lives of those that have never told a lie, never hurt anyone, never wounded anyone? How can we do that? It is by assigning them a value that is lower than reality, assigning them a value lower than ourselves. Maybe this morning you'd say, I've never killed anybody. I've, I've never, I've never, I've never went out and, and, and lynched anybody. Like that wasn't me, and I wasn't a part of Nazi Germany, and I haven't, I haven't had an abortion in my history, and I don't support all of that. Like, like this doesn't apply to me. But I ask you this morning, searching, searching deep in the crevices of your heart, can you find in there instances in which you value yourself higher than another people? Can you find places where you find yourself to be more valuable than someone else? I wonder if it would be another race. I wonder if there are times in your heart in which you see another race and immediately you begin to assume the worst about them. And immediately you begin to believe that there are negative stereotypes and connotations associated with them which aren't, have, don't have anything to do with what they've done to you, what they've said to you, or any way that they've presented themselves. No, 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 no. You are devaluing them as a person. I wonder if it has to do with a generation. I wonder if you automatically assume negative things about a generation older than you or a generation younger than you. That when you meet someone from that, that is this many years older or you meet someone that is this many years younger, that immediately you feel a resentment growing in your heart. Immediately you, forget, you, you can feel yourself looking down your nose on that person and on all the things that is broken with them and all the problems that are with their generation. When you hear of refuge, you hear of refugees, wherever they may be, around the world, escaping dictatorships and escaping oppression. Can you honestly say that you don't believe they're expendable? Can you honestly train your mind to see their faces and their souls, to see their value as image bearers of Almighty God? Or do you believe yourself, even if instinctively, to be of greater value than they? You see, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that if we have resentment in our hearts, if we have anger in our hearts, then we are guilty of murder. Oh, brothers and sisters. Oh, brothers and sisters. Wherever in your heart you find a desire, wherever in your heart you find a resentment that is illogical, wherever in your heart you find yourself looking down your nose at someone else, oh, you can be assured that Christ is not there. You can be assured that you are running away from the gospel. Oh, no, 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 no. Take hold of the way of Christ. Take hold of the way of Christ who came and laid down his life for all nations and all peoples so that a church could be raised up from every tongue and tribe and nation to declare that he is 
king. Yes, that, that, that is the gospel. The second, the second recipient of the hatred of God that we see, we see in verse 18, and it is those who love their sin more than God. Those who love their sin more than God. Let's read verse 18 together. It says, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A heart that devises wicked plans and feet that make haste to evil. So we see two sides of the same coin in those two phrases, right? But the first thing that we see is that they premeditate their sin. They premeditate their sin. They aren't, they aren't sinning out of the heat of, in the heat of the moment. They aren't, aren't sinning in the passion of the flesh. No, they're sinning according to their own premeditation. They're sinning according to their own pre-made plan. They've planned ahead, and their plan includes a rebellion against God. Their plan is decisive and willful and purposeful. The turn of the 19th century, Napoleon Bonaparte, was coming back from his military conquest in Egypt. And they had been wildly successful. At the time, uh, the French were, were governed by a directory of five directors. And coming back from Egypt after these successful conquests, Napoleon had one thing and one thing only on his mind, and that was to consolidate power in himself with his own military prowess. Within five years, Napoleon is the emperor of France and leads an empire, conquest, uh, conquest all across Europe, expanding, expanding the French footprint until ultimately it leads to his exile and demise. But you know, I think that is a picture of premeditated sin. That is a picture of premeditated sin. That premeditated sin is a decisive, willful coup of the heart in which you aim to overthrow the rulership of Christ in your life so that you can consolidate power in yourself and do what you want to do and be in charge of you and go where you are going. Oh, premeditated sin? Premeditated sin is the most disgusting type because it is a willful rebellion against a holy God. And when you run away from the will of God, when you plan to to, to run from what God has said, then you are declaring that God's will is not good and that God's rulership is oppressive and that you have greater wisdom and that you have greater ability than God himself. It is the plan that says, God, you don't love me enough. You don't have my best interests at heart. Your rule is too, is too oppressive and you are too much of a dictator. I, I, in the way of Adam in the garden, want control of my own life. I, in the way of Adam, want to, want to run after my own knowledge and my own pursuits and my own ambitions. I want out of your grip. It is to capitulate the passions of the flesh in a way that denies the goodness and the character and the dignity of God. This morning, are you planning to sin? Are you planning to sin? That is, are you staging a coup in your life? Do you have a mistress that's waiting for you to text her when you get out of church? Do you already have a date with your computer screen? Do you already have a drunken party on the calendar? 
Do you have a plan to, to cut and cheat on your taxes as the tax season comes? Are there, are there, are there planned premeditated sins in your life in which you are rejecting the willful rule of God? And God, you are too oppressive. You are too hard. You are too mean. Are you readying yourself to overthrow the reign of God in your life because you are more excited about your sin, more in love with your lust than you are with his glory? You see the other side of the coin. That he doesn't just plan, he doesn't just premeditate his sin, he follows through quickly. He follows through quickly. He says, feet that make haste to run to evil. Feet that aren't uh, reluctant about rebelling against God, aren't fearful of rebelling against God, are unsure about running, uh, rebelling against the will of God. No, 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 no. They run. They run out from under the rule of God. They run away from the will of God. They run away from the kindness of God. Wherever God is, they go the opposite direction. Whatever God's will is, they run as far away from it as they can get. Whatever their plan to reject God, whatever their plan to rebel against God, whatever their plan to enjoy sin, they get to it as quickly as they can. See, haste, haste is the pace of Haste is the pace of deception. Sin, all sin would be seen as irrational with enough time. All sin would be seen as irrational with enough time. It, it charges a high price and then it shortchanges the payout. Who in their right mind would, would trade the integrity of their marriage, the beauty of their wife, the intimacy of a marriage for a computer screen? It's irrational. It's illogical. It's nonsensical. And men are doing it every single day. Who on earth would go out to eat at, at Zaxby's and then choose to make payments on Zaxby's for three years? Like, if you framed it up like that, none of us, none of us would sign up to pay for chicken fingers for three years. And yet we're sliding our cards every single week being deceived by the enemy to be brought into a relationship of oppression no 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 no. stop running to sin stop running to sin stop running to that which will destroy you stop running to that which will unravel you instead instead take up the wisdom of paul when he looks to the example of joseph and he says flee sexual immorality flee wickedness flee sin. No, run away from sin, not to sin. Run away from wickedness. Run away from rebellion. Run away from all that will destroy you and run to God as hard as you can go because God is the benevolent and kind master who welcomes all into his kingdom, who will all receive his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and the provision of resources that he has promised to them. So don't run to sin, run to God final recipient that we see is that God hates those who tear down what should be built up. God hates those who tear down what should be built up. We see this in verse 19. He says, a false witness who breathes out lies, one who sows discord among brothers. There's a shift that happens between verses 17 and 18 and verse 19. There's a shift. The verses 17 and 18 really talk more about 
the experiences of the individual, what the individual does, what is, what is within the individual. But then we get to verse 19, and we're really here looking at what is corporate sin, what is, what is corporate uh, rebellion, what, what those things that God hates among his people collectively, a sin that affect uh, a lot of people beyond yourself. The first example that he gives is a false witness who breathes out lies. A false witness who breathes out lies. In other words, God hates those who tear down reputations that they should build up. God hates those who tear down reputations that they should build up. What we have here is lying, but we have lying on a bigger scale. Liar on a bigger bigger scale. This, This is a lie that damages someone standing in the community. This is a lie that damages someone's standing in the church. This is a lie that that damages potentially someone's livelihood. This is to to bring them to court and to bear false witness and to perjure yourself because you so hate that person that you want the reputation of that person to be utterly destroyed before a judge and a jury. This is to slander them in the nature of the church, to have a a group of people in the church and to to stage a coup against that person so that that person might, might realize their own ways and so that you might exact some type of revenge. And you can imagine how much God hates it. You can imagine how much God hates it because this is the very thing that led to the murder of his son. This is the very thing that led to the murder of his son. The chief priests, they, they bring and they, and they stage this, this Mickey Mouse trial overnight. And, and they come and they, and they throw the Son of Man before him, having been betrayed with a kiss. And the chief priests, they begin to present all of these false witnesses. And they say that Jesus did what he didn't do and that he said what he didn't say. And ultimately, they incite an entire crowd of his own people against him who are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Whose reputation have you crucified? Whose reputation have you crucified? Who is it that that you have destroyed in the eyes of other people? Whose reputation have you diminished around other people? Who have you lied about and bore false witness about so that they will be looked down upon by those you should be building them up to? Oh, you see, it was you that shouted, crucify him It was you who believed the false witnesses that day. It was you that said that Jesus did what he didn't do and said what he didn't say. It was you that led Jesus to the cross. The seventh and final specific example is meant to be seen as the culmination. This is one who sows discord among the brothers. One who sows discord among the brothers. And it's meant, remember I told you there's a second thing I want you to see about this formula of six, no, 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 seven. What he wants us to see is that the seventh one is the culminating principle. It's the one that all of the others are building up to. It's the one that all of the others are contributing to. It's the one all of the others are talking about. And so in the mind of Solomon, as he builds up through these things that God hates, through this jarring hatred of God, he always has in mind the target of division among the people of God. So the final thing that we see is that God hates those who divide brothers and should defend. God hates those who divide brothers and should defend. See, God detests division. And ultimately, every single characteristic, every single 
thing that we see in, in Proverbs chapter 6 is a seed of division. A seed that is planted in relationships. A seed that is planted in the community of disciples. A seed that is planted among the church. A seed that is intended to grow so that there is a fracture among the people of God. A fracture in relationships that God has given to us that they might be life-giving to us and lead to our flourishing. And I want you to think about the relationships that you know. I want you to think about the churches that you've known to crumble and the marriages that you've known to fail and the friendships that are no more. How, how, how many marriages can it be said that, that it ended because the one person or both people believed themselves to be more important than the other? How many marriages have ended because one person or both people prioritized themselves over everybody else? How many churches have, have come to an end and been ultimately divided because the membership loved sin more than they loved God? Because they were running after the pre-planned sins in their own lives and ultimately running after the sin, they fractured the church. How many friendships have ended because there was one person who, didn't, who, 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 built, who tore down who they should have built up, who divided who they should have defended? See, all of these, all of these are seeds of destruction, seeds of division. And God hates every one of these seeds of division because ultimately they divide us from Him. See, He desires for us to be His children. And yet it's these very realities that make us His enemies. I, I bet that if you think about it closely enough, you would have to acknowledge that all of these things that God hates true about you. You've had haughty eyes and a lying tongue, tongue, and you've had resentment growing in your heart. That there's been times in your life in which you've planned to sin and then ran after that sin with everything that you have. That there have been times in your life in which you have torn down the friends that you should build up, sown division where you ought to bring unity. You see, all of us have lived lives that God hates. All of us have lived lives that are detestable and an abomination in the eyes of God. But brothers and sisters, that is why Christ came. That is why Christ came. Jesus came to endure the hatred of God, though there was nothing in him that God hates, so that we might enjoy the love of God. That Jesus took from us everything that was despicable, everything that was abominable. And God, Jesus took it from us and placed it upon himself. And God took the very things that he loved in Christ and that he treasured in Christ and that were righteous in Christ. And he took them from Christ and placed it upon us. So that there was a transaction that took place where we stopped being enemies of God and started being sons of God. Where God stopped being against us and started being passionately for us so that we might enjoy fellowship with him that God took his hatred and rather than aiming it at me and aiming it at you he aimed it at the Lord Jesus that we might be brought to his table that we might enjoy his household I wonder this morning I wonder this morning 
how, if there is somebody here that has never come to the place in their life in which they have surrendered their everything to Christ. I wonder if there is someone here who is living in a way that God hates and you have never been confronted with the message of God's hatred that today you would come and you would take hold of Christ so that you could enjoy God's love rather than to experience his hatred. This morning, this morning, friend, would you come to Christ would you come to Christ? I'm pleading with you. You believe yourself too far gone? No, the gospel can. You believe yourself too young? No, the gospel can. Do you believe yourself too young? No, oh, too, the gospel can. The gospel can save you and transform you and bring you to the table of Christ. Humble yourself and come, come to the altar and take one of our elders by the hand and let us tell you about the Christ 